I have been so excited to drop today's podcast. Today's guest is Lily Nichols. She's a registered dietitian and nutritionist and a certified diabetes educator. She's devoted her entire career to researching real food nutrition for pregnancy and gestational diabetes. And what she's uncovered is a wide gap between current prenatal guidelines and what's actually optimal for both mother and baby. I recommend both of her books to every single pregnant woman that walks through my doors, and I am so excited to have her on the show today. Lily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, and thank you for the very kind intro. Oh yeah, well, there's gonna be more to come. So let's get started. Can you tell me a little bit about um, how and why you fell in love with prenatal nutrition and what your like clinical experience looked like? Sure. Uh, my my interest in nutrition goes way back, way, way, way back. And so, um, you know, I was, I, I knew at like 15, I'm, I'm going to study nutrition in college and had sort of not really realizing it, but had an introduction into some of the, um, the rationale behind like epigenetics, how, how what you eat during pregnancy can impact your baby. Uh, this didn't really solidify into like a passion until I would had already gone all the way through school, um, had become a dietitian, and I was working with an organization called the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, which some people also call Sweet Success. And we work on, as their name suggests, mainly gestational diabetes, but any type of diabetes in pregnancy. And it was when I was working there that I learned some really fascinating statistics. And one of which was that Children born to women who have uncontrolled blood sugar in pregnancy. I'm going to highlight the uncontrolled <laughs> because it's not doom or gloom if you get this diagnosis. Um, but if blood sugars aren't well controlled, the child can face a six-fold higher risk of diabetes or uh, obesity by the time they're a teenager, basically. Um, so this was something where it was like, wow, this is like a two birds with one stone situation. If we better nourish mom, if we help her get better blood sugar control, she will have a healthier child who will not become, potentially not become another statistic in the rising rates of childhood obesity and diabetes that our country is, is facing right now. Um, so that definitely lit a fire under me. And that was, you know, really interesting part of my career to see how public policy works or maybe doesn't work so well um, on a very micro scale of just this specific program in the state of California. And then I also have quite a bit of clinical experience with pregnancy and gestational diabetes as well. So I went on to be the sole dietitian and diabetes educator for one of the top gestational diabetes doctors um, in, in Southern California. So hundreds and hundreds of patients and case studies. And it was there that I was given pretty much, they were big believers in nutrition and they put a lot of um, emphasis on like, you got to see the dietitian and you got to get your, your nutrition under control. But they also really let me improve upon whatever educational materials had been left by the previous dietitian to really like do what works, not necessarily what is written on the piece of paper. And so that's really where I developed the approach that I outline in Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, um, which I, I, when I wrote that, I didn't really expect it to go on to be like this big thing, but it, it has turned into a big thing. And even 
One country, the Czech Republic, actually updated their guidelines to remove like a mandatory minimum of carbohydrates and instead put a mandatory maximum of carbohydrates in their guidelines um, as a result of the research I presented in that book. So that's those are like two two areas. I've also worked in a lot of um, consulting, training other health professionals, uh, research projects, uh, and then of course the two books: Real Food for Gestational Diabetes and Real Food for Pregnancy. So my goal is really just to put in you know better quality, more up to date information in the hands of moms and healthcare providers because we can do a lot better with prenatal nutrition than we currently do. And there is you know, a wide gap between what our current guidelines say you should do and what the research is saying, hey, actually, you need XYZ nutrient in this amount versus what the RDA says. Or maybe this ratio of macronutrients doesn't lead to the best outcomes. But there's often about a two-decade gap between that type of research getting into the guidelines. So I'm kind of like from a grassroots level, <laughs> getting yeah. that information out there and maybe hopefully someday the guidelines will will update to reflect that. Yeah, definitely. I I feel like you are beating the drum and starting that grassroots movement and I am just like here to fan your fire. So <laughs> Thank you. I, yeah, absolutely. Um, just looking at like carbohydrate intake and balancing blood sugar when you were working with, when you were working with uh, like newly diagnosed women um, who were pregnant with gestational diabetes, what were some of the recommendations you were making and did you give them a maximum carbohydrate intake um, number or how were you, how did you work with them privately? So when I first started practicing, I was a dutiful dietitian and followed the guidelines. And the guidelines are that you consume no less than 175 grams of carbohydrates per day. That would split literally that amongst, be sick. <laughs> yeah, split that amongst <laughs> your meals and snacks. Yeah, this raised some alarm bells for me. I mean, early on, I've always been critical of everything I've been taught. <laughs> so it's not like I trust everything. But as a, as a licensed health practitioner, you are really under the gun to like follow the rules, right? right. Um, but 175 sounded pretty high to me because after a lot of experimentation over the years, I had found even as somebody who at the time was not pregnant, um, so didn't have that extra caloric need that could go towards carbohydrates, like 175 is way too high for me personally. Um, so I'd kind of already slipped into what I consider like a moderately low carb diet, nowhere near the like 300 grams a day <laughs> that they're often telling you to eat, um, but also not 175 grams. And when I would give that advice to clients, their blood sugar either would not improve or would get worse in some cases. So, you know, you'd have cases where some people were really not super nutritionally aware and were, you know, drinking soda and having like just just mass quantities of carbs and not realizing it, a lot of which was from added sugars and refined carbohydrates. Sometimes in those cases, dropping down to 175 and doing more just whole food unprocessed carbohydrates was good, right? But there was also cases where you had people with a pretty significant degree of insulin resistance or like challenge managing their blood sugar and their body couldn't tolerate a high amount of carbohydrates without experiencing high blood sugar. Gestational diabetes can literally be called carbohydrate intolerance of pregnancy. And so 
it's, it just didn't make much sense that, you know, someone's taking a glucose tolerance test of anywhere from 50 to 100 grams of pure sugar in the form of glucose and experiences high blood sugar and they get a diagnosis. And therefore, your meal plan is like 45 to 75 grams of carbohydrates per meal. Like, what? what how are we expecting that to result in normal blood sugar? You know? right. And so, yes, I did end up. Um, after a lot of research, because there's a lot of you know warning that going low carb is unsafe in pregnancy. After a lot of research, um, what I came up with was that yeah, it's actually okay to eat less carbohydrates. Hey, you actually need more protein. Hey, it's okay to have more fat. And lo and behold, we have better blood sugar readings, better birth outcomes, way lower rates of women requiring medication or insulin. Um, just. The, the hospital would get back to her office and be like, uh, are you sure that person had gestational diabetes? Because they're expecting, you know, big babies and all sorts of complications. And then they have like seven and eight pound healthy babies. And they're like, what? Huh? Um, so yeah, it, it was it was a process, but I know it's helped quite a few people. Definitely. I mean, I'm not sure if you know much about my philosophy, but I'm obsessed with blood sugar balance. And I just tell people to eat whole foods and four things, protein, fat, fiber, and greens, and prioritize them in that order. Um, And that's how I ate throughout my entire pregnancy, my entire first pregnancy. Um, And I remember getting a little bit of backlash and I stopped sharing a little bit of what I was eating because I think people were like, how are you not adding more? And I just really was like focusing on protein. I wasn't nauseous. So it was really easy for me to do that. And this time around, it was not the case. So we can kind of get into some tactics (laughs) you may have for that. Because that was not so much fun, but it actually made me really empathetic to the whole situation um, and managing it really well. But but yeah, I mean, going from probably someone like you where I found that I used a glucometer, I used glucometers with my regular clients who aren't pregnant, um, Mm -hmm. just for them to understand how their food affects them, how it affects their cravings, how it affects their mood, like how it affects all kinds of things. And so I think it's everything. (laughs) I'm with you. Yeah. Like I just, am like, you can get this for 50 bucks at CVS and then you can learn about really what's going on. And it's, it's when you're crashing and craving and wanting all the sugar and the coffees and like trying to bring yourself back up, it's not your fault. It's just like, Hey, what'd you eat it? What'd you yeah. start your day with? Like, do yeah. you know what I mean? It is, <laughs> it is physiology. It's not willpower. And mm-hmm. I like you, I mean, over the years, there's one thing that holds true in my work and forgive me anyone who's doing intermittent fasting, but you fix breakfast and everything else is pretty much fixed. And fix breakfast under the guise of blood sugar balance, you know, as you're talking about protein, fat, fiber, greens. All the other issues, not all the other issues, many of the other issues fix themselves with that one simple shift. And I don't think people understand how powerful it is until they actually do it themselves. And then they're like, whoa, that actually worked. You're a miracle worker. It's like, nope. (laughs) <laughs> we just we just got you off that roller coaster. You didn't take you didn't take the uh, the roller coaster up Montezuma's. You got to just like roll in the kitty train instead. Yep. Yeah, I know it's such a difference. And like cravings at three or four o'clock in the afternoon, all of that. And so I just kind of like because I didn't feel sick, I rolled into bash being pregnant with Sebastian, feeling fine, and I gained twenty six pounds, and he was eight pounds nine ounces. Like so, I think you know people are fearful that, oh, if I'm having low carbs and I'm not eating um, you know, 
eating for two that all of a sudden I'm not going to like have a healthy baby. Um, So I'd love for you to address just like some of the research that's in your books and, um, you know, just from your clinical practice around what, what do these babies really need? Yeah. Well, that's kind of how I went into this whole really taking apart the prenatal nutrition guidelines and and what pretty much formed the basis for for real food for pregnancy was okay we know we need xyz micronutrients vitamins and minerals um where do we find those in food let's come up with some sort of a realistic meal plan that people will actually eat that will actually taste good using those foods and then let's see like where do the calories fall where do the macros fall did we check all the boxes for the micronutrients or not how does it compare to the meal plans put out by like the regular prenatal nutrition guidelines? And well, I present that in the book. <laughs> I present yeah. it in the first chapter, which I give away for free on my website. There's a you know table in there that shows you, okay, this is what the conventional meal plan says from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. This is the nutrient breakdown. This is just a sample. I just pulled one day of meal plan from my book and did a nutritional breakdown and this is where it ends up and you see across the board all the micro almost all the micronutrients are higher on the real food plan but you also see that even though it's calorie matched the macronutrient ratios are flipped on their head so instead of your diet coming from 45 to 65% of your calories being carbohydrates the ratio is more like well, on that sample meal plan, and you can go up or down however you see fit for your own physiology. But how that sample meal plan played out, which was moderately low carb, was about 25% calories coming from carbohydrates, the rest coming from fat and protein. Because when you actually start looking at what micronutrients are most in demand and most likely to be deficient, you're looking at micronutrients that are primarily found in foods that are high protein. And also, because nature packages protein with fat generally, they have fat too. You're not finding high concentrations of a lot of those micronutrients in high-carb foods. No, unless they're fortified. Unless they're fortified, yeah. And it's not to say you can't have any high-carb foods. Um, People always take things to super extremes here. But it's just like when it comes down to what do we need to emphasize to make sure you're checking all the boxes for your vitamin A, your vitamin B12, your folate, your choline, your iodine, your selenium, your iron, your zinc. I mean, you can go on and on listing all these nutrients. You're not going to find those in a piece of bread. It's just not there. You're finding a lot of those nutrients in meat, fish, eggs, dairy products, uh, meat that's been cooked on the bone. You're finding in green leafy vegetables, non-starchy vegetables, avocado, um, some of them in low sugar fruits, but again, a lot of this is actually coming from animal foods, and that is like that is scary for people, I think, um, because we've been told for decades and decades eat less saturated fat, and as a result, that means less animal products, and in their place, you generally eat more carbohydrates. And it just just simple numbers on just running a micronutrient analysis, which I find so many nutrition professionals do not do, um, your answer is right there. 
in plain daylight. Like it's not hard to figure out. It's not rocket science. Um, of course, I take it a step further and, and go nutrient by nutrient, food by food, why certain things make sense and give you all the science anyways. But from a very simplistic perspective, the four things that you emphasize are, are precisely the things that help you grow a healthy baby. They help you do it in a way that your body, your metabolism can handle it because pregnancy on its own is a very insulin resistant state, um, in, especially in the latter stages. So you become more carbohydrate intolerant as pregnancy progresses. We'll talk about the first trimester in a minute. Um, <laughs> and, and so you don't, your body does well without a ton of carbs. And I had, you know, a similar experience, not only with, you know, hundreds of clients having amazing outcomes, um, for myself, my own two pregnancies, you know, it was like weight gain was on point, not excessive, and babies were eight pounds and eight pounds two ounces. I mean, every time they were like shocked that <laughs> baby was as big as it was. It was like, yeah, I didn't need to like chug, you know, orange juice every day to make sure I'm getting enough carbs for the baby. Like, no, babies grow quite well and proportionally and without an excessive amount of body fat and without hyperinsulinemia and all this stuff with just real food focused on especially getting enough protein, not being fearful of fat and not going crazy overboard on the carbs beyond what your body can handle. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, I think. <laughs> totally. Well, I think um, today's day and age, we're pretty lucky with certain brands that come out You know, because paleo and keto and some of these lifestyle diets are pretty popular. I do feel like you know, there are brands that come out with a grain-free tortilla that you're like, okay, I can supplement here and there as needed or add sweet potato or squash or berries and feel like I'm not missing out. Um, and obviously occasionally like have your treats and feel like a real human or whatever. But if 80% or 85% of it is dialed in, it's going to be that type of experience, I think, for most people. Yes. Agreed. So let's, let's address the elephant in the room. Um, yep. first, the first trimester, food aversions, carb cravings, um, and what's your take on all that? So yeah, first trimester is uh, a wild ride <laughs> for a lot of people. Um, you're, you were lucky in that you had one pregnancy where the first trimester was pretty smooth sailing, but a lot of people experience some degree of nausea or food aversions. And I mean, the stats are high. It's like 90% of, yeah. of pregnant women. I so. just eked by the first time, but I'm telling you, I got it big time this time around. Yeah. So, so it's yeah. all good. So, I mean, there's a lot, there's just so much going on in the first trimester. You have um, you know, implantation taking place. You have the placenta starting to grow and release hormones. You have big shifts in your thyroid hormones, um, shifts in your electrolytes. Um, that's why so many people feel like oddly bloated, but they're like, I'm so early. Why do I have like a baby bump already? It's just like, it's just bloating. That's just sort of a part of this hormonal cascade. And of course you have the nausea and the food aversions that that go right along with all of this and feeling really tired. A lot of people are just completely zonked and worn out. Um, you have to remember that the embryo is like reproducing cells on creating cells on such a rapid pace. I mean, it's no wonder you're tired. 
I mean, by eight weeks of pregnancy, basically all the major structures have been formed, meaning like all the little organs and, and whatnot. The neural tube closes by 12 weeks. I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on in the first trimester. So be kind to yourself. Um, there's a lot of theories on why the nausea and food aversions happen. And I, I do cover that in chapter seven of Real Food for Pregnancy. But some of the ones that I think are most notable is um, the shift in thyroid hormones. There's, there's a thought that uh, nausea is just a sign that your body has adequate iodine and it's shunting thyroid hormone um, to baby. It's actually really important for their brain development. And I don't know why nausea would result as part of this, but they have shown that um, you know when the thyroid is off, sometimes absence of nausea is experienced in the first trimester. Not to say that that's always a problem, but that has been an observation in the literature. There's um, sometimes a thought that maybe the food aversions are sort of this this like ancient lizard brain <laughs> part of us that is trying to keep us away from eating things that could make us sick. And so when you think about common aversions being um, like protein, meat, uh, that could be because those foods spoil so quickly. Like before refrigeration, I mean, you had to like eat your hunt right away um, or find a way to preserve it. So it's possible that that was to protect you from foodborne illness. It's possible that the aversion to vegetables that a lot of people have or bitter flavors especially again, kind of harkens back to this ancestral, like, don't eat this plant that's bitter because the bitter plants are likely to be poisonous, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We sort of have that, uh, it's just built into us where sweet things are generally safe. You think about finding fruits out in the wild and bitter things when eaten in excess can be problematic. And there are some um, phytochemicals that are, are known to be teratogens, things that cause birth defects. So it's possible, even though that vegetables are fine, it's not a teratogen, quite good for you. Um, it's possible that there's some you know, evolutionary um, tie to, to all of this. So how do you like get through that phase? Is It's tricky because a lot of the foods that we've just been talking about are the exact things that make people's stomach turn upside down. And you really just have to do the best that you can. I always like to remind people that in the first trimester, technically, um, until until the placenta takes over the blood supply to the baby, the embryo is nourished actually from your endometrium. So you're relying on your nutrient stores. Baby's relying on your nutrient stores at that point in pregnancy. So you, you have to like, Take a deep breath and be like, okay, even though the only thing that I can keep down is (laughs) salt and vinegar chips and lemon water, and those are two things that worked for me, so I'm going to say them, Um, I know that I'm relying on my nutrient stores and like, it's okay. You know, like I'll I'll, get through this. And also the nausea is a sign that I probably have a viable embryo and that sometimes is a little extra reassurance. Because you're like, you don't really know if you're pregnant or not pregnant at that point because you're not really showing. You're just like, well, I hope it sticks, but I don't really know. And the nausea is kind of a reminder that like, okay, it's probably still sticking. I'm probably still good, but this is super miserable. So, you know, you find your way through salty, sour, cold foods, um, sometimes relying on really um, plain 
protein options can be helpful for people because they don't trigger the same aversion. So for me, like dairy products were much more tolerable in the first trimester than something like beef, you know? Um, I found that when things were spiced more, and again, some people want to have bland foods. For me, I found like spicy Mexican food was great or having like salsa on my eggs, I could do it. But if it was like plain eggs, especially if they were overcooked, it was just awful. So you have to kind of... You have to kind of like find your sweet spot because your food preferences and your smell triggers, those things can change day by day, hour by hour. Finding somebody to cook for you, doing a little more takeout so you don't have to have the food cooking in your house because a lot of those odors can be a trigger. Um, sometimes that helps, you know, cold cold plain foods like, you know, watermelon and, and a cold smoothie or something that might get you through. You just have to be creative. Definitely. I would say I, it's so funny again, like my first experience to now is so completely different, but I was that typical ice, cold ice water with lemon or Rob Wolf's element. Do you know that? Um, his like electrolyte drink, the citrus salt. So that, a little bit of that in the water, or um, I was like a pickle and sauerkraut like obsessed person yes. <laughs> in my first trimester. Um, but yeah, it was really just. I Chris thinks that this second baby is um, like it, like sort of fried, but then kind of mixed up eggs with avocado, <laughs> tia lu pizzas, hot sauce, and a siete yep. tortilla because that's all I could make for myself the first like yes. twelve or fourteen weeks. I was like, I can cook an egg. But if like yes. someone shows me a piece of raw meat, I will vomit. Yes. And it's interesting too. I've observed that sometimes food aversions or cravings can be different based on how somebody has been eating beforehand. So I've noticed that, and there's no research on this. This is all anecdotal, everybody. Don't come at me with daggers. But I've noticed that sometimes people who have been eating more paleo, keto, at least regularly including animal proteins in their diet, they often have more aversions to those foods early on. Whereas, not always, but I've had a couple instances with a vegan or vegetarian client um, who came into pregnancy being long-term vegetarian or vegan. And then the types of foods they crave are often like burgers. I had one lady who craved oysters. Gosh, what was it? It was like oysters, eggs, and bone broth, which like, would all those foods together would cover probably any of the nutrient deficiencies that she may have experienced from a long-term vegan diet. And I was like, wow, you know, cause first trimester, I was not in a place where I could eat oysters or no seafood way. or, you know, most meat was not that enjoyable unless it was like, you know, like I said, in a Mexican dish was good or something that was really salty. Um, olives, for some reason, worked well for me. Seaweed snacks. It's like you really need the salt and electrolytes early on. Um, so that's just another interesting side note is like maybe you want to think about maybe the aversions that you're having, like your body has adequate nutrient stores for those. And maybe you don't need to stress too much about it because, you know, come 13, 14, 15, 16 or so weeks, I mean, I'm giving you a range because everybody's nausea fades at a different place. Um, you'll be able to eat real food again. And it will be glorious that day when you're like, oh, I want a salad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I feel like I'm just in that now. And it's kind of that crazy period of time where you, I've 
I've lost the nausea is gone, but I'm before my anatomy um, ultrasound. And like, I'm not in a place where I'm feeling like major kicks yet. So I'm sort of in my own head where I want to be like, is everything okay down there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause I do feel like salads, but I'm also not getting those like third trimester kicks in the ribs, but um, right. <laughs> so, so now I think this is a really important thing to talk about because I, I am totally on board with you. It's just sometimes in the first trimester, you just, you can't get it together and that's okay. Um, and, and you alluded to this earlier, but hormonally and metabolically, and I know with your gut microbiome, there are so many changes that happen towards the end of trimester putting you in a place um, and a higher chance of gestational diabetes. So it isn't, it, I think it's okay when things aren't that great in the first trimester as well, but how can we get it together? And what are some suggestions you have um, for clients or for anyone listening that may have, you know, kind of let the wheels fall off in the first trimester because they didn't feel like anything but salt and vinegar chips. <laughs> and now they need to, now they need to balance it out for themselves and for baby. Yep. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of mindful eating and just being, being as mindful as possible about all the things, all the sensations in your body, um, including not, not only like your hunger and fullness cues and your digestive symptoms and energy and, and whatnot, just everything. And this will serve you well in birth and motherhood. So take note. Um, but notice the time when you feel like the nausea isn't so bad that if you're going to eat that thing, you'll feel like you're going to throw up. Do you know what I mean? Like there's the queasiness and then there's like the really intense nausea where you're like, I can't keep anything down. When you're getting more towards the queasiness phase and it's really not as severe of nausea, then you want to start sort of inching yourself back to real foods. So you want to start thinking like, okay, how can I incorporate a little more protein in this meal? I'm big on people thinking about no naked carbs is what I call it. So if you're having carbohydrates, because that's the thing that settles your stomach or that you can tolerate for whatever reason, can you also match that with some fat and protein and to your point fiber um, to give you a, a better blood sugar balance and not have a huge blood sugar spike? Now, when you do that, do you notice a difference in your energy levels, your hunger and fullness cues, your cravings? And just keep moving the needle in that direction day by day, week by week. So it's probably going to start pretty slow. For me, it's more about like trying to get a little protein in. And then maybe you can start figuring out which vegetables are going to work for you again. Start with the ones that are kind of plain. You know, Don't go straight for the lacinato kale or something that's bitter. Um, but just start trying to incorporate more produce, more greens into your diet and just see how you feel. Over time, these like you'll your body will probably actually be almost craving those foods. Maybe not craving, but like you'll be like, man, it would feel really good to have like broccoli with dinner tonight. (laughs) You know, you'll get there, but you do need to kind of edge the needle that way because we have to remember processed foods are literally engineered to make us want to eat more of them. I mean, Rob Wolf has a whole on it. Why are right. you? Um, and, and you also have, you know, just the physiologic response to uh, pure, um, I don't want to use the word pure, but like refined carbohydrates and simple sugars would be a better way to put it when they're separated from their original food source. Those things trigger a major dopamine surge in your brain and make you want to eat more. So you can use pregnancy as an excuse for cravings 
for things that you would crave even when you're not pregnant. I mean, you can keep doing that over and over and over again. It's one thing to like have to err on the side of less nutrient dense foods to get through the nausea phase as like a survival mode. And then it's another thing to be like, well, I'm pregnant and I'm craving ice cream and I'm craving pasta and I'm craving chips forever and ever. You know, it's like, yes, within reason, but when it's not a physical revolting, like I'm going to vomit if I eat this real food, sometimes it takes a little bit of like, okay, body, we're going to get you some vegetables today. And you just have to make that call. Definitely. I think, I think you're just starting to add them back. Those cravings will return and that want and need to eat produce and whole food meals really returns. Um, I love that you touched on um, not having naked carbohydrates because that's something specific that I think I see with clients who aren't pregnant. Um, so I'm a big proponent of three meals a day and no sma- snacks um, until I'm pregnant because then I find that I do need smaller and more often to eat more often. But one of the mm-hmm. things that's interesting is sometimes people will carb backload after a workout where they just, or they're just deciding like, oh, I'm going to have like watermelon or you know, a cookie on its own because I know my blood sugar is going to spike. But if I'm really active and insulin sensitive, then my blood sugar is going to come down faster and my insulin is going to be cleared faster. And then I'll just get back to like a more balanced meal after that, which is definitely a way to clear insulin faster. But during pregnancy, that roller coaster can be like so jarring and really induce cravings. So I love that recommendation that you're like really food combining for balance because that can, those are the types of things that I've found personally and with clients that can derail eating, like for the sure. meal after or the meal after. So um, let's get back to a couple of things you mentioned earlier on. You mentioned dairy and you mentioned eggs. Um, and that's pretty funny because that's like really the only protein I could eat in my first trimester. And oddly enough, two things that I couldn't have breastfeeding because Bash has eczema. And I found I was pregnant with my second the day after I weaned. My son at 18 months, peed oh, on wow. a stick, <laughs> the peed on a stick and was pregnant. Um, but I was like, well, I can have my eggs and my dairy again. So I literally have eaten all, I eaten all the eggs and, and probably all the good poultry cottage cheese that anyone could get their hands on. <laughs> but, um, but it is something that I'd love for you to touch on just because I don't um, tend to eat a lot of dairy you know, regularly, but it's something that I really do crave in pregnancy and something that I enjoy yep. in pregnancy. Um, and I'd love to, for you to touch on some of the dairy research and what you found um, to be successful for clients. Yeah. So same, same. I'm also not like a massive dairy eater. It's sort of like a condiment in my diet, but in pregnancy, I eat a lot more of it. So for whatever it is, there's something about dairy. Um, could be that it's that easy protein to get down. Could be that it is one of the best non-fish food sources of iodine, which you need in higher amounts. So in the US where we don't eat much seafood, dairy and eggs provide most of our iodine, which is pretty interesting. It has a lot of riboflavin, which helps with all of your like folate-dependent prevention of neural tube defects sort of situation as well. So possible that it's that, the vitamin A, the vitamin D, is it the calcium? Is it, you know, the fact that it has electrolytes in it? Um, I don't know, but there's people who really do better with um, dairy products in pregnancy, even if they didn't tolerate them well pre-pregnancy. 
And I don't have a lot of research to say specifically why that fact is, but it's just an observation that I've seen over and over again. Um, as far as you know, what types of dairy people might want to consider, I'm, I'm definitely a, a fan of quality dairy products as much as you can. So from grass-fed, pasture-raised animals, full fat, because there's a lot of nutrients in the fat that you also need your vitamins A, D, E, and K, plus you need the fat and the fat-soluble vitamins in there to absorb the calcium, and it just tastes way better. So full-fat dairy products always never take the fat out. There's a reason it's it's in there. Um, and then also I'm a big fan of including some cultured dairy products as well, so like uh, yogurt, kefir, um, natural sour cream, or creme fraiche. I think you mentioned some cultured cottage cheese. Um, those are all going to be really good sources of probiotics, which you need um, for healthier gut. And you do pass your microbiome on to your baby. Um, but also the vitamin K2 that's in there is really important for skeletal development. So everybody thinks like they're, they're huge on vitamin D and I'm, I'm a big vitamin D proponent as well. But you need vitamin D in combination with vitamin K in order to direct calcium and minerals into the right place. And not only do you need those minerals to support your own skeleton with this extra weight that you're now carrying or will be carrying in pregnancy, but you're growing a whole skeleton from scratch in utero. And yeah. that's kind of an amazing feat. So, um, you know, dairy products, love them or hate them, they do have nutrients in there. There are studies um, looking at uh, fertility rates and the um, chances of success of an IVF treatment in people who have faced infertility and they've compared people who eat full fat or low fat, non-fat dairy products. And the ones who consume the full fat dairy products have significantly higher rates of a positive implantation, successful implantation and live birth, meaning they were able to carry the pregnancy to term healthfully. Um, so there is something about the fat soluble vitamins in there that seems to be important or just the fat itself. When it, I think your other question was about eggs. Mm -hmm. Eggs are like one of my top foods for pregnancy. Um, both my books have, have chapters on foods to emphasize and eggs are the first one that I cover. Mostly because they're, they're really easy for people to access and fairly inexpensive, relatively speaking, and kind of like plain on the flavor profile. Um, even if people don't eat a lot of animal foods, usually eggs are something they'll eat. I mean, there's a lot of reasons eggs, I feel like, are just like an acceptable food for most people, um, but they're really nutrient-dense as well. And the major nutrient in eggs that I like to highlight is choline, which is a B vitamin-like compound that is somewhat similar in its functions within your body as Folate, so really important for the prevention of neural tube defects and also promoting optimal brain development of baby. It's important for your placental health, for your liver health, for your brain health. I mean, it's a really cool nutrient that we're just starting to learn more about. And eggs are the basically the number one food source, um, second only to liver, but people don't usually consume a, they don't consume any liver or they don't consume enough to really be um, contributing that significantly to their choline needs if you're looking across like weeks and weeks of their dietary intake. Whereas with eggs, you can eat lots of eggs. <laughs> it's easy right. to get eggs down, easy to make a scramble in the morning or a quiche or fried eggs or something. 
Um, but you also get, you know, in addition to that, really good source of protein. You get vitamin B12. You get a, a non-fish source of DHA, an important omega-3 fat also for brain development. There's so many micronutrients and eggs that they're really, a, I think, an excellent thing to to include in your diet on a regular basis. You know, with the exception of people with egg allergies, I always get that question. Um, but if you don't have an egg allergy, find a way to incorporate some eggs with the oaks into your diet. Yeah, and if you if you can't find an a prenatal that actually has choline in it, which <laughs> yes, I challenge you to do. That's kind of... <laughs> um, what a, Other than um, eggs and dairy, what are some of the hero foods that you highlight in um, and love for, for pregnant women? So we're talking a lot about animal foods <laughs> because as I said, uh, a lot of the nutrients that you really need more of are found in the animal foods. So I'm, I'm going to continue to talk about animal foods here. Um, no, no hate for greens or avocados or berries or any of that. We love those foods too. Um, but we do need to emphasize the animal foods. So we make sure we tick all of those boxes for micronutrients. So uh, other foods that I'm a big fan of would be liver and organ meats, which if you're listening and in your first trimester, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. Most people are not going to be able to eat much of that in the first trimester. Um, but when we look at you know, concentrations of some of these micronutrients in question, like vitamin B12 or zinc or iron um, in organ meats compared to muscle meats, like say, you know, steak or chicken breast or turkey, you have significantly higher concentrations of those nutrients in liver and organ meats, meaning you don't need to eat a massive quantity of them in order to reap the nutritional benefits. I mean, you can have just like an ounce of liver hidden amongst a dish that has, you know, ground meat or something. And I do have recipes in the book that have hidden liver, like a meatloaf and meatballs and stuff like that. Um, but it's like you're sneaking a multivitamin into your food. The concentrations of B12 are like 200 times more than what you'd find in muscle meats. It's also a lot of people are really afraid of eating liver because they've been told that you shouldn't have it because it's too high in vitamin A. But I always throw out this one study um, in the Netherlands that found that women who don't consume liver at all are at significantly... Um, high risk of vitamin A deficiency, but those who do eat liver, and again, you don't have to eat huge amounts of it. We're talking about like tiny <laughs> couple ounces here and there. Um, their vitamin A deficiency was pretty much unseen. So we do need some of these foods. They have been promoted as fertility foods in many, many cultures across the globe. And it's just us in the West that happen to single out one nutrient that we studied in isolation in a synthetic form and found that it was bad in pregnancy. And therefore, the, the food that has the richest amount of this nutrient should be completely off the table. It's really <laughs> silly logic when you look at it. And there are studies showing that that logic um, is, is not accurate um, by, by the current science we have. So liver, organ meats, they're good stuff. Uh, I don't even I'm think gonna, I talked I'm going to interject. Sorry, I'm going to interject with one question here. Um, just so we can, I like to turn things on their head and, and, and really provide the positive. Why would someone need vitamin A um, for pregnancy? So vitamin A, I feel like all of our focus on vitamin A is that vitamin A in excess can cause birth defects. Right. That's 
that's it's a teratogen. You shouldn't have vitamin A. Don't have vitamin A in your prenatal. I mean, there's all sorts of crazy stuff out there. Yes, vitamin A is a nutrient where when provided in excess and primarily and maybe even solely only in its synthetic form in excess, it can cause birth defects. However, we also have abundant research, probably more so than we have on the toxicity of vitamin A, on the necessity of vitamin A for fetal development. Um, it is absolutely required for the development of many, many different structures in the body, especially the eggs or the, the eggs, the eyes probably is involved in the, in the <laughs> of the ovaries and their eggs though, right? Um, but in the eyes, in the brain, the development of the heart, kidneys, there's a lot of different birth defects that are actually linked to vitamin A deficiency. And in the US alone, it's estimated that 30% of women are deficient in vitamin A. And it's a pretty tricky nutrient to define deficiency for many reasons. We store a lot of our vitamin A in our tissues and it's not in our serum. So it's hard to like get a gauge on, on deficiency or like suboptimal vitamin A status. But quite a few people are not, I know from doing nutrient analyses, are not taking in enough vitamin A and liver is by far the richest source of it in our diets. So it's a Goldilocks nutrient. You need some, but you don't want to have too much. And by having a few ounces of liver once or twice a week, um, or even like once every other week, just having some of it a little bit um, really goes a long way in preventing or correcting vitamin A deficiency without putting you at risk for excess. Our, our vitamin A, I need to do a whole blog post on this topic. I had time. Um, <laughs> the vitamin A requirements for excess are set very, very, very conservatively. Um, and the recommendations for the RDA, like the recommended daily allowance, is also set very, very, very conservatively. So you're okay having some liver. It's a self-limiting food just by its flavor that most people... Actually, I've never once in my whole career had a person who is eating excessive amounts of liver. So you don't have to sit down to like eating liver five meals a week or something. <laughs> it's like once or twice a week, you're fine. Yeah. I, I feel like for me personally, I think my I think my mom was into liver pate and liverwurst when I was growing up. And I found US Wellness Meats has a liverwurst and a like a Braunschweiger, which mm -hmm. is like a blend um that I can get my hands on. Um and I've like grated some liver into a ground beef before, but Chris was like, Why does this taste weird? So I was like, okay, I'm not doing that again. But um I'll have to try some of your recipes because I definitely I either need to sneak it or I need to be like made for me. Yeah. And I don't um, love it in burgers either, but I do try the meatloaf recipe in Real Food for Pregnancy. That is that is a big hit. And do it. Um, I prefer that it's ground up. So personally, I just make a big batch of pate like twice a year and then freeze it in portioned containers in the freezer. So usually three to four ounces at a time. And then I'll put that in a recipe with ground beef. I'll just defrost the, the ice cube or the jar of um, liver pate the same time that I'm defrosting the meat. And then you mix it right into the recipe. And it, I swear the, the, the meatloaf recipe, like everybody who has it is like, 
why does this taste so good? Like the, the liver flavor doesn't necessarily come through. It just has more flavor, if that makes sense. Totally. Um, but it does help to put it in a dish that has a lot of spices. So that's why I think burgers are, usually burgers are just like, you know, you could do salt on beef and you're good to go. But with a meatloaf, you have more spices or I have like an Indian spiced stuffed bell pepper recipe. I think it's in Real Food for Pregnancy. If not, it's on my blog. And so the Indian spices and the curry kind of hide it a little better. But, you know, get creative because most of us, myself included, did not grow up eating meals of like liver and onions, you know? So it is something you have to get creative with. Definitely. But that's a great idea because I already have the liverwurst from US wellness meats. I never thought that to put it on anything other than like, um, like chills crackers with mustard or like, just like eat it. So I'll just start mixing it in that way. That's perfect. Um, So can you explain the difference between um, vitamin A that you might find in plant foods versus liver and organ meats that you're talking about? Yes. So like many nutrients, they come in different forms in foods and vitamin A is a perfect example of that. So in animal foods, we have retinol, which is the the metabolically active form of vitamin A. And in plant foods, we have carotenoids. So beta carotene is a good example, but there's also many other different types of, of carotenes and carotenoids in plant foods. And in order for your body to use the the plant forms of vitamin A, the pro-vitamin A, the carotenoids, they have to be converted into the active form, into retinol. And that process is not very efficient. So you need like 12 to 24 more molecules of carotene to equal one retinol. And on top of that, you have differences in our genetics where some people are better at converting plant carotenes into vitamin A and other people do a very, very poor job of it. And so there can be some genetic differences on whether or not your body is able to do that process efficiently. So my opinion is that we need some retinol. We need some preformed vitamin A in our diet or even in our prenatals. And I know this gets like controversial because people take this super black or white, you know, no retinol, it's a teratogen. It's a teratogen in like extremely excessive amounts. And I've never seen a prenatal that has excessive levels of retinol ever. In fact, so many prenatals don't count, don't include any retinol whatsoever. whatsoever, And it's a hundred percent beta carotene. You better hope for the people that are eating, taking that prenatal, that they're eating liver, which I guarantee you they're not. Yeah. Because <laughs> almost nobody eats it. So you need, you need some. It's okay to have some preformed vitamin A in a prenatal. It just shouldn't be more than like 10,000 IUs per day, which it generally is not. Um, I was trying to think if there was anything else I wanted to point out on that topic, but I think that's, I think that sums it up enough. That's great. No, I think, um, I think you make a really good point because when you're talking about when you're talking about forms and then you're also talking about genetics, you can kind of talk about so many different things from heme iron to non-heme iron, folate mm-hmm. to folic acid. Um, can you touch on actually those two topics? Because I think I, I'm pretty sure you talk touch on them in your book as well. Yeah, you said heme. So iron first. So iron comes in different forms in our foods. So plant foods have non-heme iron 
animal foods have heme iron and they are very differently handled in the body where heme iron is pretty efficiently absorbed anywhere from like 25 to 40% of heme iron is absorbed so if you're talking about you know a beef burger or turkey leg or oysters or something like that you can expect if you look on the nutrition facts or look up the amount of iron in it you know for 25 to 40% of that you're going to absorb whereas with non-heme iron plant sourced iron the absorption rate can be very, very low just because it's in a non-heme form, first of all, but second of all, because plant foods often contain many other compounds that interfere with iron absorption, like phytate and oxalic acid and and other things. Um, So non-heme iron, I'd have to look exactly at the the rates of of absorption, but it can be as low as like 1%. I think at best, you might be looking at 13%, but that's probably probably in the case of a high iron plant food to begin with, like pumpkin seeds or something that have been um, sprouted before you eat them. Yeah. Or fermented in some way. So soaking, sprouting, fermenting, um, consuming alongside something that's acidic or has vitamin C, those practices can in- improve your absorption of non-heme iron. Um, so say you're ha- making um, beans. If you soak the beans ahead of time and then you cook them for a very long time, which helps um, break down the phytic acid. And then you also eat them with some tomato salsa and some, I don't know, fresh sliced bell peppers on top for your vitamin C you will absorb more iron from those beans than if you were to just take like a can of beans, <laughs> not eaten with anything acidic or any source of vitamin C and they haven't been soaked and slow cooked. Um, but it still doesn't come close to what you absorb from animal foods. So this is why we see such a difference in um, like the rates of anemia among people who include animal foods and people who don't include animal foods. It's just just very basic iron absorption physiology. Um, but you, you realize, like I love, you just like dropped so much knowledge right there. Plus you gave people an applicable thing to do if they wanted to be plant-based um, by taking the time to soak and sprout and pair appropriately. Because I think like that, the hardest part is misinformation. When someone throws up an Instagram image that's like a beef patty and then a kit, you know, a bunch of kale and they're like oh gosh. twice, five times the yeah. iron. And I'm like, we're not even talking, it's apples and oranges and absorption. These are all totally different <laughs> things here, you know, but it's, it would take me too long to comment. So I'm just like, ah, let it go. Yeah. <laughs> and especially when they, when they're comparing like hundred grams of this to like a hundred grams of that. I'm like, can you list out how much kale it takes to equal a hundred grams? Like how many cups how many bunches yeah. of kale that is? Because it's crazy. You're going to be um, keeled over with so much yeah. pain trying to not to mention, that fiber. you know, for people who are vegetarian, and this is not really well publicized, but your actual iron requirements from your diet are significantly higher than a non-vegetarian, specifically to make up for the absorption issues, and that isn't that isn't widely discussed. Everyone still like looking for the same iron target. So you have to take it a step further than just trying to hit an iron goal from food alone, which is hard enough to do in pregnancy when you're eating an omnivorous diet, even one that includes 
high iron foods like organ meats and ground beef and oysters and clams and stuff. Already it's hard to meet your iron goals from food, but it's especially harder when that goal post is higher and you're looking at, you know, just plant foods which are less less concentrated and and less absorbable. Definitely. And I think you just your focus is on whole foods, the most nutrient dense foods, which I just love about you so much because I think people just don't realize that. They're not they're just looking at nutrition facts. They're just looking at like a label or looking some, you know, a real food up and they're thinking like, oh, I'm going to absorb all of that. And it's like, we have to like mm-hmm. outkick our coverage to, to get where we need to go and make sure that we are preventing deficiencies, especially when things like absorption and, you know, anti-nutrients and genetics play a role. Right. And so, we didn't even get into nutrient synergy. <laughs> I know. Um, so if you're looking at, I'll just throw this out there. If you're looking at, at, at treating anemia, we have a lot of studies that have shown that iron alone doesn't cut it for most people. But when you combine it with vitamin A or you combine it with vitamin B12, you fix significantly more cases of anemia with even providing a lower dose of iron as well. So the way they used to treat anemia before we could actually, before we had the ability to like synthesize or separate nutrients and then sell them as separate supplements. Because by the way, it's pretty recent. It's like definitely in the last hundred years that we've been able to do this, friends. So before that time, how did doctors treat anemia? They recommended liver a liver supplement, like desiccated liver or liver juice, whatever the hell liver juice is. Um, <laughs> but that was highly effective at treating anemia. And hey, you got your trifecta of heme iron, highly absorbable, vitamin A in the retinol form, and high amounts of vitamin B12, all in one food, anemia solved, right? Yeah. So there's a reason that I was able to go through both pregnancies without experiencing anemia without taking any supplemental iron. It was through food. You know, part of it's starting pregnancy, hopefully with with optimal iron stores from having, you know, eaten well for a while, but also you can prevent your your iron. It's gonna drop a little bit because you have hemodilution, you have more fluids in your bloodstream. So labs do change, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have to go anemic and it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have an iron supplement. There's so much that we can do with food. I love it. Ugh, I'm going to have to do a part two. We're going to have to. I feel like this is already so good and I feel like the first hour has flown by. Um, <laughs> let's touch on MTHFR and folate because that's a pregnancy pet peeve of mine to just how is it 2020 and I'm turning around bottles of prenatals that say folic acid. I know even the good brand, like quote, good brands, like professional grade, like you have to order this through a functional medicine practitioner's full script. It's ridiculous to me. I, I, I I don't have a good answer for why (laughs) needles still include uh, folic acid. Well, actually I do have a good answer because um, I'm friends with Dr. Ben Lynch and he was sharing with me how wildly different the pricing is for folic acid versus folate, like an L5 methylfolate. Follow Um, the money, Lily. Yes, (laughs) it is a cost issue. There are also some people that are um, not willing to 
look at the physiology and instead they have they say like well we have this large body of evidence on folic acid because so many studies are done on folic acid and not many studies are done on methylfolate mm-hmm. so they'll be like well methylfolate it's unproven i'm like look at the biochemistry like literally look at the process that folic acid has to go through to be metabolically active you have to methylate it you have to turn it into <laughs> methylfolate what are you talking about methylfolate doesn't work so um, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but <laughs> there, there are everybody thinks about folic acid for being important for pregnancy. And what they really mean is that folate is important for a healthy pregnancy. Folate is um, another way of saying vitamin B9. It's a B vitamin and it exists in food in many, many, many different forms. We call them food folates. Um, the supplement industry or whoever came up with a synthetic version at one point called folic acid. And it was hailed as like this amazing breakthrough because folic acid is so much better absorbed than food folates, which have to undergo a couple different enzymatic steps to be absorbable. So everyone's like, folic acid, it's the greatest thing ever. Except that you don't necessarily metabolize the folic acid that you're taking in. And it also might not be a good idea to have lots and lots of unmetabolized folic acid in your system, which we're now in the past 20 years mainly are just starting to uncover. Um, But in addition to that, 40 to 60% of us have a genetic difference in one of our enzymes that's involved in folate metabolism called MTHFR. And if you are one of these 40 to 60% raises hand because I am one of those people. <laughs> Me too. Um, I mean, the odds are it's like 50-50, right? So a lot of us, right? If you have that genetic difference, your body cannot as efficiently convert folic acid into active methylfolate. And that difference, there's, there's, that difference depends on exactly what your genetic variance or genetic mutation is. But it is significantly reduced. How how much of a degree depends person to person. So for someone like myself who has one of the genes for um, MTHFR, I am an inefficient converter of folic acid, and therefore, if I take in a lot of folic acid, which I could do through a low quality prenatal vitamin or multivitamin, uh, crappy B vitamin supplement, uh, nutritional yeast that's fortified because most of them are fortified, uh, fortified refined grains. So if I'm eating a lot of white bread or pastries or other things, pretty much all your white flour is going to be fortified with folic acid. If I'm eating lots and lots of that stuff, I'm probably not going to be converting much of it into folate. Um, In addition, I'll have a lot of unmetabolized folic acid buildup in my system, which can actually create a functional folate deficiency in your body, which surprises a lot of people. I need to write a post on this topic too. Um, so I knew I could you, poke and prod at you to get, what, to get deep in the research with me. <laughs> yeah. So what you need is the active form. Like you can bypass all of this stuff. Nobody needs to pay money to do a genetic test, figure out what MTHFR they do or don't have. Yeah. If we're just eating methylfolate, if we're doing a supplement, um, and also eating our food sources of folate, we'd be fine. Right. So you got your liver, legumes, leafy greens, 
Some people call it the three L's. You have avocado. These things are really rich in folate. So if you're getting these foods, especially a lot of these greens and, and of course, your, your high-quality animal foods, you're basically covered on folate and you don't need to go crazy. Um, I see quite a few people who do a prenatal on top of a folic acid supplement too, which is also really worrying because we are finding some studies showing there can be adverse outcomes from this excessive level of unmetabolized folic acid. So folic acid is very much involved in rapidly dividing cells, which is why it's so important for, especially in early pregnancy, for the closure of the neural tube and all that. Um, But you don't want it at an excessive level. And in addition, you don't want it in an excessive metabolically useless um, form. And it needs to be you know, taken in the context of other nutrients that work in synergy with folate in your whole methylation process in your body, your one carbon metabolism. These are the things that go down to the very basics of, of you know, cellular function and cellular replication and you know, we have to be thinking about more than folate. We have to be thinking about choline and riboflavin and vitamin B6, and vitamin B12 and glycine. There's so much involved in this that it just drives me completely bonkers that we have singled out this one nutrient. And then like, especially in a synthetic form yeah. <laughs> and looked at it, like it's the greatest thing since sliced bread and it might be doing some harm. So, right. I think that's what the, I think that's why you see people doubling up and adding, um, you know, adding a folic acid or hopefully if they know what's up, a folate supplement on top because they're afraid of neural tube defects and they don't realize the synergy between all of the other nutrients that you just mentioned. Um, yeah. Ugh, yeah, but I, gosh, I appreciate you just going into such detail there because I think I would love just if anything if people if the only thing they got from this podcast was to turn around their prenatal and make sure that they're, yes. they're getting folate in their prenatal versus folic acid and that all that they, they need to remember, those three L's are, I always tell people, folate, think foliage. Leafy greens. Yep. If you're eating the leafy greens or the cows eating the leafy greens, I don't care. You're getting it. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> so I wanted to just go a little bit deeper into some of the micronutrients um, that you mentioned and what and how we can get our hands on them. Like, iodine and selenium and why we should be worried about getting these in our diet. Sure. So we'll start with iodine and selenium, which are kind of easy because they usually, well, not always, but they often come hand in hand because you find them in seafood. Fish and seafood is going to be one of your major sources of both of those micronutrients. So those are both minerals that are especially vital to thyroid function. And what's interesting about thyroid function in pregnancy is there's a direct connection between a mother's thyroid hormone levels and infant brain development. So if your thyroid is off, sometimes brain development doesn't go exactly as it should. And this is actually one of the reasons that people who have thyroid issues have a significantly higher rate of uh, miscarriage early on. So it's something to definitely be thinking about. So we're talking fish and seafood primarily, but you'll also find iodine, I think as I alluded to earlier, in dairy products and eggs. You find it in probably highest amounts actually in seaweed, specific to the seafood category. Seaweed is very high in iodine. 
with selenium, uh, you also have selenium in most of your animal proteins, especially your organ meats. You uh, also have it in things like Brazil nuts. There's some people who are like, you just eat one or two Brazil nuts a day and you're like, you're good on selenium. Um, Keep in mind that selenium concentrations in in any food are going to be dependent on the environment in which the food is grown or raised. So there are areas where selenium is low in the soil and thus it'll be low in the food. So I, I recommend that you are including a variety of selenium sources in your diet, fish and seafood being one of them. So you can just ensure you're, you're good to go on that. Awesome. And you just mentioned fish. So we're going to go there. Um, <laughs> of course, I'm like picking the things that I primarily get backlash on. Um, yep. I, <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> I tend to, I tend to uh, eat seafood probably twice a week pregnant and have gotten some, you know, not so nice comments about, um, am I worried about mercury? And those aren't the recommendations. And I would say for the most part, I w- I'm eating uh, Alaskan you know, salmon direct from Alaska and occasionally skipjack tuna. And that would be maybe even once a week. But can you touch on um, selenium, specifically mercury and seafood? Yes. So what's funny about people's response to you is that you actually are following FDA guidelines. FDA guidelines, so this isn't controversial at all. FDA guidelines is uh, 12 ounces of fish per week. So two meals of fish a week, assuming you're having approximately six ounces at each meal. Sounds about right. You're right on track. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I could get away with more. You could get away with more. Um, and in terms of, yeah, I usually recommend anywhere from like 12 to 16 ounces of fish a week. I mean, I've lived in Alaska before, and so I have like eaten lots of fish <laughs> before because you just have so much available. So a lot of it depends on just what your typical lifestyle is like. I don't think you have to put an arbitrary limit on it, but I set a lower uh, recommendation of 12 ounces per week. Um, I think the FDA is is on point with that. As far as the recommendation on limiting fish due to concerns about mercury. I mean, well, that's part of the reason the FDA says 12 ounces, first of all. And they say no more than one can of tuna per week do the chunk light kind, and that's low mercury. Fine. Okay, great. However, when we look at mercury levels in seafood, often the um, mercury levels go hand in hand with the selenium levels in the fish. And we find that selenium helps to prevent you from absorbing mercury. Go figure. (laughs) So I think people can like rest. I I don't recommend people eat like tons of like the super high mercury fish. Like, no, we can always play it on the safe side. I'm not against, I'm not saying like eat lots and lots of high mercury fish, but you can feel okay about eating the types of fish that are generally low mercury. So salmon would be one of those sardines would be another one, cod is another one. Um, that also provides a lot of other nutrients like your DHA, your iodine, your selenium, your vitamin B12, your iron, your zinc, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and know that you're actually getting a net gain, a net nutrient boost, and you're not going overboard on mercury. 
There's a really interesting study out of the UK that looked at maternal fish consumption and neurodevelopment. And they were looking at 12,000 mother-infant pairs. And they actually found that consuming more than 12 ounces per week was linked to higher childhood IQ and communication skills. And the worst cognitive outcomes were in children whose mothers consumed no seafood in pregnancy. So while I think it's important we consider mercury, I think a lot of people take it to extremes. And sometimes this is actually coming from ill-informed health providers as well, where they're saying, well, fish is dangerous because of mercury, so don't eat any. Or it's just interpreted as don't eat any. I mean, think about the fear that you have when you hold a can of tuna and you're pregnant, right? It's like palpable where you're like, well, this has some mercury, but I really want a tuna salad, so I'm going to do it. You know, It's always like ingrained in us that, oh my God, we're going to kill the baby. <laughs> right, right. It's and in, in reality, there's a lot of nutrients in fish that if you go to the extreme of not consuming seafood and you're not supplementing on the backside with some of these nutrients, you're pretty much guaranteed to be low in both DHA and iodine. And I would probably say selenium as well, which as we've discussed are really important for you. So I think people just need more, you know, common sense about the fish thing and and less fear. Absolutely. And I think it's also there is again kind of sort of going back to um iron and folate versus folic acid, omega threes in general, like long chain versus short chain and conversion rates and and really like getting enough DHA making sure that you're supplementing and if you're eating fish, why that's so great. Can you, can you go into omega-3 and the difference between long chain and short chain and their sources and um, why DHA is still so important to supplement with? Yes. You're asking all the good questions. So <laughs> DHA, everybody is familiar with omega-3s being important for brain development. The one in pregnancy that is specifically so important. The one that is most studied is DHA. And that is found in animal foods, like mostly seafood. That'll be the greatest concentrations. Um, And the one plant food you'll find it in is algae, certain types of algae, but really you only know the concentration if it's like in one that's grown for algae-based DHA supplements. So let's keep it simple. You need either animal sources like fish and seafood, or an algae-based DHA supplement in order to get enough DHA. There are some people in the plant-based community which will recommend that you just eat more plant sources of omega-3s, like walnuts, chia seeds, flax seeds, and just eat more of these plant sources, and your body can convert it. They fail to mention that the conversion rate from the plant sources of omega-3s, which we call ALA, is like a couple percent at best. And we have many studies showing that is quite literally a physiologic impossibility to consume enough plant sources of ALA to convert it into DHA, to meet the needs of pregnancy and meet the needs of her baby. And also there's studies on this in breastfeeding as well. You can give breastfeeding mothers all the flaxseed you want and all the flaxseed oil, and they do not transfer more DHA in their breast milk because we are very inefficient at converting 
plant forms of omega-3s into DHA. It's the apples and oranges effect. And I'm so glad you were able to explain that because it's just like when I think about what these little babies need, I'm thinking about things like folate. I'm thinking about DHA. I'm thinking about choline. I'm thinking about iron. Like I'm, you know, I just, I want those nutrients for our little humans, whatever your lifestyle is. And if that means you need to supplement from here to Timbuktu, please do. Um, and if you're listening and you're open to trying some liver in your meatballs or meatloaf, please do. Um, there are just there are just ways we can get it through food, and there are ways we can supplement. But we just need to do what's right for the baby. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> um, so speaking of, because um, you kind of touched on it, and. You know, I, I have all these little rabbit holes I want to go down with you on, but um, you were talking about holding a t- can of tuna and feeling the fear. And I feel like fear mongering in pregnancy is like just, it's just synonymous with pregnancy. It's like, oh, yeah. a turkey sandwich. Oh, are you having cheese? <laughs> <laughs> um, what can you tell us about, um, about like, foodborne illnesses and the fear we may have around our turkey sandwich. Yeah. Or any other foods. (laughs) So the food safety stuff is um, probably the most annoying part of pregnancy nutrition advice given out because I feel like the first, when you first find out you're pregnant, like the first question that I would always get as a prenatal dietitian was, what can't I eat? Everyone's so afraid of like doing the wrong thing. Like, what can't I eat? What do I need to avoid? And we've really instilled this deep, deep fear of like messing it up. Um, and, and maybe with the, with the rationale that it's about food safety, but still people are, they enter pregnancy afraid. And I just, I don't know, that rubs me the wrong way. We should be like happy and celebrating and thinking about the things that maybe we can eat more of to provide our baby with nutrients, not thinking about everything that's going to do harm. So the food safety issue is due to the immune system changes in pregnancy. And there, there are indeed changes in your immune system that allow your baby to grow. And as a result, your body becomes slightly more susceptible to foodborne illnesses. Therefore, The recommendations on foods to avoid are, aside from the fish and mercury thing, almost entirely about food safety and avoiding foodborne illness. Now, this is all well and good if actually like the epidemiology matched up, meaning like, okay, we are seeing excessive rates of, you know, salmonella infection and listeria and whatever among pregnant women. And it's specifically from eating these foods, but that is not the case. And instead, we have this, what I've come to see as a very cherry-picked list of foods that some governing body says is a risk for a certain foodborne illness and therefore don't eat it whatsoever or don't eat it unless it's like cooked to death, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Deli meat is one of those foods. What's interesting on the deli meat thing is they, researchers estimate one case of listeria infection for 83,000 servings of deli meat in pregnant women. 
So the likelihood that your turkey sandwich <laughs> is going to give you listeria is, is very slim. Um, moreover, I think this also bypasses the fact that when you're pregnant, your sense of smell is crazy. And if that turkey was really off, you would know and you wouldn't yeah, be able you wouldn't to eat, eat it. it. Yeah, no, you wouldn't be able to eat it. So like, for example, I found, back to the nausea thing, very salty stuff was helpful for my nausea. And, and one of the things I could keep down was oddly enough, salami. And salami technically would be like a food safety risk, right? Because it's listeria. Right. Um, it could contain listeria. And I found that I could have salami like the day or like the day I opened it, maybe the next day. And then by the third day, I was like, I can't eat this. Like, husband, you need to eat the rest of the <laughs> salami. It's like inedible to me now. You know, so there, you're so sensitive to taste changes and, and smell changes that I feel like we need to give a little more credence to mom herself. Um, but you could take it for, you know, many other foods. So like eggs are another one. People are super concerned about eating eggs with runny yolks because of salmonella. It's estimated that the chances an egg contains salmonella is anywhere between 1 in 12,000 to 1 in 30,000 eggs. So very unlikely you're going to come across an egg with salmonella. It's seven times lower risk of containing salmonella if the eggs are like from chickens raised on an organic or pasture-raised farm. So they're just healthier chickens when they're not crowded in a, in a cage um, with a bunch of poop from other chickens around them, they don't harbor salmonella. Lo and behold, healthier animals means they have a healthier microbiome too, right? Right. Um, and then I always play devil's advocate, which is that, you know, there's this cherry-picked list of foods that you can't consume. And for those of us who have an Instagram following, you're like shamed for <laughs> eating them. You know, it's like, you have to be careful what you put on social media because it's like, do you want to deal with Firestorm or not? Um, but when you look at what, what are the foods actually linked to high rates of foodborne illness? What? Like spinach and peanut butter. 46% <laughs> of foodborne illness outbreaks in the U S are linked to raw produce, yeah. primarily leafy greens and fruit. Mm -hmm. So you should be just as careful about eating that cantaloupe especially if it's pre-cut from the grocery store deli section, by the way, all those pre-cut fruits and vegetables, I wouldn't touch those with a 10-foot pole when I'm pregnant, but I will eat deli meat. <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, informed consent. Um, unless you're going to cook them. If they're pre-cut and you're going to cook it, I wouldn't worry about it. But if you're going to eat like raw cantaloupe sliced up, you know how many foodborne illness outbreaks are linked to raw cantaloupe? It's like crazy. But <laughs> cantaloupe doesn't make the list. No, they yeah. just give you your deli meats and your eggs and your soft cheese and your raw milk and, you know, and they leave off all the vegetables and fruits. But I will say one thing that I've found interesting is that when I posted about this before, I get a lot of feedback from people in other countries and outside of the US, especially in many parts of Europe, I hear that they're actually told not to eat salad and to be careful about raw fruit, but they are not given advice to avoid sushi and they're not given advice to avoid eggs with runny yolks or not given advice sometimes to avoid raw milk cheeses, for example. So it really depends country to country, like which foods make the naughty list and which foods are fine. It's kind sounds, of arbitrary. Sounds like the countries outside of the United States are a little more up to date on where the outbreaks are happening. Yes. <laughs> oh, Lily, you are the voice of reason. 
I swear. I just, I'm so thankful for you putting all of your time and effort into writing your books because they're what who they're exactly what I recommend to my clients who want to know how to eat when they're pregnant. Um, I've obviously, I feel like you're preaching to the choir because I look there and I go like, oh, the fat four is everywhere. And she's just like eating the most nutrient dense foods and we can all do this. Um, so I just, gosh, I appreciate your time so much today. And um, I'm so excited to put this podcast out, especially because I am pregnant and I'm just, you know, I'm in the thick of it and I'm getting lots of questions and I knew that you'd be the perfect person to bring on the podcast. So I just, um, I want everyone to know where to follow along and where to buy your books. And yeah, just shout yourself yeah. from the rooftops. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank yeah. you again. So you can find me on my website, which is lilynicholsrdn.com. Uh, on there, I have the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy for free. So if you want to dive into that, go there. There's also a freebies tab that has a um, video series on gestational diabetes. If anybody has just been diagnosed, that'll help walk you through everything. And again, like reduce the fear factor because everybody gets really afraid about that diagnosis. I also have like just lots of blogs up there. I mean, I have an infant, so I am and a toddler, so I'm not blogging super regularly these days. But there's you know 250 plus articles up there um, for the taking, so it is still a useful resource, even if. I'm not writing one every single week anymore like I was at one point in time. Uh, as far as social media, I'm most active on Instagram. And my handle's the same as the website. So it's at lilynicholsrdn. And as far as the books, you have Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Probably the best place to get them is on Amazon. They usually have the best price and ship super fast and all that. Um, both are available in print and Kindle. And I also have Real Food for Pregnancy as an audiobook, which um, I narrate if you're not sick of my voice yet. Yes, I love that. Okay, well, everyone knows where to find you. And if they don't feel like reading, they can listen along. Yep. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I really, really appreciate it. And like I said, I just can't wait to get this podcast out there. So to end the podcast, we always end with the same question. And that is, what does body love mean to you? Oh, well, for me, I'm, I mean, I'm big on the mindfulness factor. So trying to pay attention to the signals of my body before it becomes... A scream is definitely one way I show it love. So I'll notice, you know, something as simple as like going to sleep late. I feel hungover the next day. Maybe it's just being old and having kids, but I'm like, <laughs> I, I literally feel hungover if I don't go to sleep early. And knowing that I'm probably going to have some degree of interrupted sleep with kids, um, I'm like a go to sleep early person or you know, another whisper I might get is if I eat something that I don't normally and then I have indigestion or crappy energy or sugar cravings or something like that. I try to take note of that early. Again, when it's a whisper before it's like a, I've been doing this for three weeks and my body's screaming at me now. So I can go back to what I've always been doing. Like, what have I figured out from listening my, to my body for decades? What works for me? Like, keep doing that. So I feel good. That's how I show love. I love it. Tuning in, listening and uh, owning 
an early bedtime. I'm all about that. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna have to start owning it a lot more in 2021, but I'm right there with you. Thank you for listening to Be Well by Kelly. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bewellbykelly.com and follow me on Instagram at bewellbykelly. I would love if you picked up my books, Body Love and Body Love Every Day. They're sold on Amazon and at all major booksellers. 